brilliant. And it will serve you very well if you have that in front of you um, as we go through, as we literally journey through um, this psalm, as we'll do this morning. Let's pray, though, as we begin. Father, we thank you for the book of Psalms. We thank you for the depth, the variety of Psalms that we find there. Thank you for all the wonderful truths that it speaks of you. And Father, this morning, please, would you help us to truly grapple, wrestle with what we find here? And would your spirits teach us from it? And not that just we would understand, but that we would live rightly as a response. In Jesus' name, amen. God is good. God is good. We know it. We read about it in the Bible. We come to church and we're told about it. Perhaps our Christian friends remind us of it regularly. God is good. And if you're a Christian, I think we believe it. Until, or then, we get the phone call from the doctor. Our child starts getting bullied at school. We don't get the promotion that we've been banking on. A relationship breaks down. The best friend perhaps walks away from the Lord. And then, perhaps it is harder for us to say, God is good. Maybe we start doubting God's goodness. We question it. Maybe we'd say, yeah, in theory, God is good, but is God good to me? We need wisdom as we think about this question, is God good? We need wisdom as we think through this internal and sometimes external challenge to God's goodness. And it's wisdom, I think, that Psalm 73 provides. Uh, we, as has been explained, we're doing psalms for all season. We're looking at different types of psalms, different genres of psalms, that may be particularly helpful at different times of our lives. And today's psalm, Psalm 73, is a wisdom psalm. The wisdom psalms help us to uh, understand life and therefore ensure that we live rightly. And in Psalm 73, which was written by Asaph, Asaph was in charge of the music at the tabernacle. And as he presents wisdom to us here, he is refreshingly, if brutally honest with us. He's got a problem. He's got a question, which is linked to the one that I've asked. It is, how is it that God is good to his people when it is the wicked who are prospering and the pure in heart are struggling. Let me, let me say that again. This is, his, this is his problem. How can it be that God is good to his people when it, it is the wicked who are prospering and the pure in heart are struggling? So I want you to, this morning, come on a journey with me. The journey that Asaph wrestled with himself and we're, as it were, going to follow in his footsteps. We're going to walk behind him, see what he saw, feel what he felt. And it's going to help us to grapple with this question too. But like all journeys, it's really good to know where we're heading. You know, you've got to know what your destination is. And so Asaph starts with his conclusion. In verse 1, he gives us the kind of end of the journey a summary. 
And that is, and this is our, our first point, is know that God is good to his people. That's his conclusion. Spoiling it for you right here. Know that God is good to his people. After thinking and grappling, this is where he lands. So look with me at verse 1. Truly, truly, there is no doubt, surely, truly, God is good to Israel, to his people, to those who are pure in heart, those who are committed to God. Without doubt, God is good to his people. Now, there is a sense, of course, in which God is good to all of his creation, but Asaph here is specific. God is good to his people. That's the conclusion that we're heading towards on this journey. And although this is his conclusion, this is the end, this definitely isn't where Asaph started out. He didn't always think like that. So in verse 2, we find out, I guess, where we're starting the journey. Look at it with me here. Because, in fact, we see that his starting point is very precarious. In fact, he almost slips off the path before he's begun. Verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? Why why was he in this such precarious position? Well, verse 3 tells us. You see how it starts with the word for. This is the reason why he was so precariously placed. And the answer is envy. This is his, his starting point. So you see, I've kind of put, know that God is good to his people. That's where we're heading. So, so here, envy. This was his starting point. We see in verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. As Asaph looks around, he sees that the wicked, the arrogant, prospering. And he is envious. He's, he's jealous. I mean, just, let's just see what he sees. So verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, and they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Life just looks so easy for these people. Right? There's no trip to the doctors. They're fit and healthy. There is no money worries. They're not scraping around to make rents. These guys, they own multiple properties outright. They're not worrying about how to provide for their children. They've got the trust fund set up. There's no stress at work because they're their own boss of their own successful business. Asaph looks around at these people who have got it made. And what is so confusing and frustrating for him is that these people are wicked. Now, just because someone is wealthy doesn't make them wicked, okay? But these people, they're arrogant. They're wicked. These are, these are people who had no time nor inclination towards God at all. In fact, they're those who are actively rebelling against God, those who are living their lives with no reference to God whatsoever. And they are flourishing. And as is the danger of success, it's gone to their heads. So in verse 6, we see that they're proud they're arrogance, they're superior. That they put their success on display like a massive bit of bling on a necklace for all to see. And in the rest of verse 6 through to verse 10, we see that their success basically means that they feel like they can do anything. And anyone watches on kind of loves them for it. And then we have the ultimate sign 
of pride. The wicked, they take God out of the equation. So verse 11. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? You know, they're so great in their own eyes that they think that they can mock God Most High. And here's Asaph's conclusion in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And Asaph is envious. Yes, they might be wicked, but it looks great. It looks easy. How wonderful to be respected, to have people listening to me rather than telling me what to do. To have enough money to do whatever I want. You know, nice holiday, holidays, phones, cars. To have a personal trainer, dietitian, life coach. To not have a concern in the world. Doesn't that look great? Now, of course, envy has so, uh, blinds him to the realities that oft, so often lie just beneath the surface. You know, under that facade of peace and prosperity so often lies unhappiness and turmoil. But it's easy to get swept along. And perhaps now, even more than ever, you know, as we look out, don't we see the same thing as Asaph did? And in fact, in the days of media and increasingly social media, we have even greater insight into people's lives. We, we see it all. Or we see what we're meant to see. And the comfort and the excesses of the wicked can cause us to envy now we're on our, our journey, right, with Asaph. I'm kind of slightly mixing the metaphor here, but uh, we're on our journey with Asaph. And from appearances, doesn't it feel like that the wicked, you know, they're, they're at the top of the mountain. And they're at the top of the hill kind of looking down on us. And they're not simply further up the same path from us. They're, they're on an altogether different path to us as it is. And doesn't it look lovely way up there? Envy. That is... Asaph's starting point. He is envious of the wicked and the arrogant, and he almost stumbles in his faith because of it. The question is, are you envious like Asaph? Envious of the wicked and the arrogant? He almost stumbled because of it. Have you, equally, are you being swept up by the success and the strength of those who, who don't know God? Do you know, do you find yourself just daydreaming? What life would be like if only... Do you find yourself thinking, would life be easier, better off without Jesus and, and trying to follow him? All the things that I, I could have or might get? We need to carry on our journey. But it gets worse for Asaph right? before he gets better. See, the wicked success is made worse by the fact of his own struggles. When he looks at others, he is envious. And then he, when he looks at his own circumstances, he is filled with resentment. Have a look at verse 13. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. You get that? In vain, for nothing, for nothing have I struggled and fought to live my life totally committed to God. And you notice how, how he kind of encompasses all of him, internal and external, his heart and his hands. 
All of him, with all of his being, he's tried to honour God, as he should. But what's it for? What's it got him? Where's it got him? Well, he, he thinks it's got him nowhere. Verse 14. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. We can hear him, you know, it's not fair. You know, like that little child who, who wants to play with the toy and isn't able to do it. It's not fair. He's kind of stroppy and grumpy. You know? And later on, this isn't just me being un- unfairly harsh on him, okay? Because later on, when he's further along his journey, he looks back to this stage. So just kind of look forward to me, verse 21 and 22. Uh, so this is look at him looking back. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. I couldn't resist showing this picture. Yeah, brutish and ignorant, like a beast, right? Beasts aren't particularly clever beings. And that's how he describes himself. Look, I was like a big, dumb animal. I'm going to move on, so you're not just staying in that. Asaph's complaining. He's resentful. Look, the wicked, they ignore you, they reject you, and yet they are carefree in counting out the pounds. Me? I've honoured you. I've turned my back on evil. I've uh, on evil. I've strived to live for you, to be pure, and I'm stricken. I'm trampled down, and each day simply brings more troubles. God, it's not fair. What's going on? For nothing, I have kept my heart pure. To put it simply, he doesn't feel like the innocent life is worthwhile. And sadly for God's people, this is so often the next step after envy. Now, what good has it been for me to conduct myself honourably at work when it is the backbiting, stab-in-the-back people who get promoted? Why have I protected my Saturday night so that I can be fresh for church when all my friends and family seem to be having a, such a great time without me? How have I benefited from denying my my sinful urges when everyone around me indulges themselves and seems to have such great fun doing so? It's resentment. And it's mixed with confusion, isn't it? I've lived for you and, and I've got ill while these other people are fit and healthy. I've lived to please you and yet my life is a chaotic mess while everyone else's seems so sorted and put together. How is it that God seems to do good to the wicked and not to his people? Surely this is the wrong way around. And Asaph resents it. And again, do you? Are you thinking about giving up on Jesus? Are you thinking about maybe switching paths? Now you might kind of be thinking of doing that in one giant leap, going, right, that's it, I'm done with Jesus, I'm going over there. Or you might just be hoping just to gradually slide your way across to that other path. That's what Asaph felt like. And in verse 16, we see this confusion. He's really grappling with it. He wants to understand. So verse 16, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He's grappling with it, and he's getting nowhere. And then here is the turning point of the psalm. Here is the turn in the path. Verse 17, Until I went into the sanctuary of God's, then I discerned 
their ends. Here he now comes to understanding. He enters the sanctuary of gods. Uh, Asaph was a contemporary of King David, so this was before the temple was built, so it was a kind of movable tabernacle. And, he go, and before Jesus came, it was the place of God's presence. And it is here, confronted by God, that he understands things as they actually are. He, he learns to understand He learns to understand not by what he sees, but by God's truth. I want to say that again. I think this is such a key thing for for all of us in so many ways. He learns to understand not by what he sees, but by God's words. And the key thing that brings everything into place is he understands the end of the wicked. He understands their, their final destiny. Life right now might, might be incredible for those people who hate God and live for themselves. But their end is not so good. I want, to see, I want you to see the deliberate link. Right, so come flick back to just to verse 2. There, do you remember, we, we saw that his, Asaph's foot had almost stumbled and slipped. But now he sees that actually it is the wicked who are on a slippery slope. So verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. That's not Asaph, it's the wicked who are in slippery places. And secondly, we see what is waiting for them. Verse 18 goes on, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Do you see those three kind of words there? Um, First thing at the end of verse uh, 18, fall to ruin. They ruined, destroyed, verse 19, swept away. See, Asaph understands that judgment is near. That the answer to their mocking question in verse 8 of does God hear, does God see? Well, yes, he does. God hears, God sees. He does know, he knows exactly what the wicked are doing, and he will act. Like a just judge, he will act and he will punish. The, the, the lives of the wicked might seem so, so real and fulfilled, but actually it's as empty as a dream. Verse 20, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. You know, dreams can sometimes seem so real, can't they? I think a couple of nights ago, I had a very vivid dream, almost hallucination, of a, a red dragon. And it was, it was so real to me, and then I woke up and it was gone. And this is what Asaph says, this is what he's understood about their lives to be. It seems so real, so vivid, so full, and it's like a dream. One day it will stop just like that. Asaph, he doesn't deny that the wicked will prosper. He doesn't say that their successful existence on earth is hollow and empty, although often it is. He doesn't say that it's not true, he just says it won't last. What Asaph understands, what he grasps now in the, ta- in the tabernacle here, in God's presence, is that though the wicked are flourishing now, it is only temporary, it is only like a dream. Present realities are not ultimate 
realities. Now, again, in your minds, come back to that picture that I, I, I put of the, the hillsides. You know, the, the success they seem to be at the top of this, this mountain looking down upon us. And actually now we see that the path that they're standing on is full of ice. They're teetering. And they're going to come crashing down. Again, can I urge you that if you are living your life with no reference to God, to reassess, you might be very happy, very comfortable where you are as it is now. But know that there are eternal realities. There is more beyond this life. And one day everyone will have to give an account to God. We'll stand before Jesus to be judged by him. And those who rejected him, he will reject. And we saw those three words, ruin, destroy, swept away. Equally, if you're, you're being tempted to, to join that, the path of the wicked, can we do some, some simple maths? Right? I'm one of those people, I, I like spreadsheets. I'm one of those people. Uh, I'm sure there are others out, out there as well. So, so let's just draw out, I know very little about accounting, but let's very simply draw out a simple balance sheet. I think that's the right words. The balance sheet of the wicked, right? On the, the kind of plus side, we have potential success, ease, comfort, prosperity. On the negative side, we have eternal ruin. And when you put those two things together, doesn't it put things in perspective? When Asaph looked at the wicked, he was envious, but now he understands their end. When he looked at himself, he was resentful, but now he appreciates what he has, and that is the next step on his journey. Appreciation. In verse 23 and verse 24, Asaph understands and appreciates what it is that he has as one of God's people. And we find four things, and because I'm a preacher, I couldn't help myself, I've alliterated them. Okay, so it hopefully helps us remember. We see four things about God's people. They are greeted, gripped, guided, glorified. We'll go through those things, don't we? First one, greeted, and that is probably the most stretched of the Gs. But have a look at verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Note here the way he puts it. It's not you are with me. It's I am with you. Now, we probably expect it to be the other way around. And very often in the Bible, we'll see it again in a second, very often the Bible is God is with us. There's a wonderful truth about God's people. But here it's, I am with you. He's making the point that as one of God's people, he is accepted by God. He has peace with God. He is greeted by God, both now and will be forever. He's greeted. Secondly, he's gripped. So verse 23 goes on. Uh, Verse... Yeah, so nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. He has complete security. Unlike the wicked who are there, ready to, to fall and slip at any time, Asaph sees that he is held firm by God. Though life might seem rocky and um, perilous, yet God's hand keeps him secure. Thirdly, he is guided, verse 24, you guide me with your counsel. Uh, the, the point isn't, I don't think, so much that he tells 
Uh, God tells Asaph what he, he should do, but it's more that he actually guides him in it. Now, if I can kind of uh, make this an analogy, if, if there's a blind person, um, there are a couple of options for how to help them get from one point to the, to the next. One option would be to kind of direct them, okay, three paces forward, turn 90 degrees to your left, two steps forward, and so on. And a far better one, isn't it, is to go there, take their hand and walk them there. And I think that's what we're seeing here of God's. He guides his people through life, as difficult as it may be. Then finally, we will be glorified. Verse 24, And afterwards you will receive me to glory. In stark contrast to the end of the wicked, the final destination of God's people is to be with God, to be with him in glory, in heaven and the new creation. What a very different end awaits God's people. God's people are greeted, gripped, guided, glorified, and the best thing of all is that we have God himself, both now and forever. So verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Do you notice the the all-encompassing language there? Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing else I desire besides you. Asaph sees that being in a relationship with God is better than absolutely anything that this world has to offer. And then at the end of verse 26, Asaph declares that now and forever the Lord is his portion. That means the Lord is his to enjoy. Asaph appreciates what he has. And so again, let's, let's draw up another very simple balance sheet. This time this is for the pure in heart. Okay, on the negative side, often afflictions and hardship. On the positive side, greeted, gripped, guided, glorified, and ultimately have God himself. Don't we see how there that the, the, the negatives are wiped out beyond any accountant's wildest dreams? And finally, verse 27 and 28, we have Asaph's conclusion. He, he sums up his journey and he settled, uh, his kind of final point, he, is he comes settled in his understanding. So verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Envious of the wicked? Why? they'll be destroyed. Secondly, the pure in heart, verse 28, but for me it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. His purity in heart and vain? I don't think so. You see his conclusion here, it is good. His conclusion is that God is good to his people. And it is good for him to be with God. Did you notice that that subtle shift? So verse 1, it is truly God is good to Israel. That's a kind of objective statement of fact. And now having travelled through this journey in verse 28, it is good for me, sorry, but for me it is good to be near God. Now he realises it is true for himself. He's happy with his life as it is and as it will be. And he wants to tell others 
that they would know this too. And as we start kind of wrapping up, well, where are you on this journey? Uh, what stage are you perhaps, uh, have you become envious as you look around? Has that transferred into resentment as uh, you're, you're bitter about your own circumstances compared to theirs? Or have you come to understanding, actually knowing that ultimate realities trump these temporary ones? Have you appreciated what you have and are you now settled in, in that? I'll be honest with you, I, I find verse 25 very hard to say. To say sincerely, whom have I in heaven but you and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you? I find that very hard to say. I need to keep thinking about these eternal realities. I need to develop that instinct that when I, I see the wicked prospering and, and my heart goes, wouldn't that be nice? I need to develop that instinct to say, I, yeah, it might be nice now, but there are eternal realities here. And I've got to remember those. I've got to apply those things when I see those things that would draw me. And I need to spend time meditating on all that I have as one of God's people. We could finish here, uh, but we shouldn't, because there's one final piece of the jigsaw that I just want to uh, put together as we finish. So verse 1 starts, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in hearts. But actually, we know that there is no one who is pure in hearts. No one naturally is that way inclined. No one is totally living their lives utterly committed to God and his purposes. But there was one. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. His heart was completely pure. His hands completely clean. He was innocent. And yet, despite all that, he was afflicted. Wicked people hated him and persecuted him. Ultimately, they killed him. What injustice that was. How unfair that was. And yet that is how God saves those who aren't pure in heart. It is on the cross that Jesus took that punishment, that ruin, that destruction, that he was swept away so that his people won't be. So that we could be greeted by God. So that we could have him in be in relationship with him forever. And this is the ultimate good that God has done. And we, when we remember that good, we remember that good, well, we don't need to doubt that God will be good to us now. Now, whilst things might not always go according to our plans, they don't always go as we would like them to be, we shouldn't doubt God's goodness. You know, and what are a few temporary pleasures compared to knowing God now and being with him forever? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words. That does help us to, to make sense of life. Father, would you please help us to apply what we have seen in, in our lives as we go away, that, that when we do see the wicked, the arrogant prospering, pray that our hearts wouldn't be drawn, but we would remember what we have as God's people. We would remember eternal realities. 
that we would see actually how wonderful it is to be committed to you in heart and hand. Please help us to be so. In Jesus' name, amen.